This audio presentation is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. Good morning, and welcome to this Policy Circle conference call with the experts. I'm Jeff Hyde, Director of Media Relations at RAND. Today we'll be discussing how serious games can help find solutions to global problems. As a senior international researcher at RAND, David Schlepak has led research on topics ranging from counterterrorism to nuclear strategy. As co-director of the RAND Center for Gaming, he designs and plays games to explore U.S. national security strategy, the evolving East Asian and European security environments, and defense planning. Dave, in just the past few weeks, there's been a terrorist attack in London. The U.S. has withdrawn from the Paris Climate Agreement. North Korea has launched a series of nuclear missile tests. U.S.-NATO relationship is being re-examined. Did RAND Gaming happen to predict any of these developments? Prediction is a really high bar for any analytic method to get over. Hmm. Um, So I would never claim that we predicted any of these specific uh, events. But I think that what gaming does do and, and can do Um, is let us gain insights into how human decision-making and the the human factor really plays into the events that shape our world. Mm -hmm. So let's take North Korea as an example. We've done very extensive gaming looking at um, how North Korea behaves and how different approaches to North Korea might shape that behavior. Mm -hmm. And while I would not say that our games have predicted the specific things North Korea has done in the past days, weeks, or months. It's very clearly indicated the difficulty of preventing North Korea from undertaking these kinds of acts. It's indicated the the difficulty of providing either positive or negative incentives that would uh, change Kim Jong-un's behavior, convince him to give up his nuclear weapons program or give up his ballistic missile program. So while I wouldn't say that we predicted that he would test this missile or that missile, um, I think we did predict that the courses of action to prevent him from doing that or to shape his behavior away from those sorts of uh, actions were, were going to be very difficult and very hard to find. So, so who is involved in these games? Who's organizing them? Who's paying for them? I mean, who are we trying to assist with well, these games? It varies from game to game and from topic to topic. I think that first you sort of need to understand that gaming at RAND has three broad purposes. Um, first of all, problems don't come to RAND if they're easy. Typically, we get problems after people elsewhere have tried to solve them, and not gotten very far. In baseball terms, we get those 97-mile-an-hour fastballs on the low outside corner, right, that are, are very hard to get good wood on. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's our job to try to get make solid contact on those questions. So gaming can help us when we first get those kinds of hard problems, get our arms around them, try to figure out what really the question is at the heart of the problem. Because often they come to us ill-formed and badly understood. So we can use games as sort of a sorting mechanism Mm -hmm. to try to get um, a sense of what the real issues are to be grappled with. And who do we have playing the the games? Um, Well, often at this phase of the work, um, it's RAND staff. 
it's um, the folks who are actually trying to, to solve the problem. It's the project teams and other relevant experts from across the, the, the wide range of expertise we have here at RAND. Mm -hmm. um, then we can use gaming as an actual analytic method alongside the other qualitative and quantitative tools that we bring to bear here. And here we have, once again, RAND staff playing an integral role, but we'll also bring in outside expertise from our sponsor community. So if it's a defense problem, we'll bring in people from the uniformed services. We'll bring in people from the intelligence community or from the Office of the Secretary of Defense. Mm -hmm. um, we'll bring in experts from academia. We'll bring in, uh, if it's a, a question of health care, we'll bring in people from the insurance industry. Um, and we'll actually play the games and try to reap insights about the, 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 the actual potential policy solutions to the problem. One of the games I know that you has made quite an impact is involves uh, Russian or potential Russian aggression toward the Baltics. And I believe those games have, have certainly gone way beyond RAND staff. You've had NATO staff involved and, and others. Absolutely. And actually, those games are a great example of using a game across all the phases of a research endeavor. So they started as being um, an attempt to really understand the problem. When we first started looking at this, we recognized that we didn't have available tools to study this. The nature of the potential conflict was such that it wasn't really the kind that we were used to looking at. So our simulation models weren't really well suited to examining it. The literature on it wasn't well developed. Mm -hmm. So building a game was a natural way to just start understanding what this problem actually looked like. And then it evolved into an analytic tool where we brought in the people who actually knew something about it. So we took the game to Europe, and we played it with people uh, who were actually on the scene. We played it with U.S. Air Forces Europe. We played it with folks from U.S. Army Europe. We took it to Rand's office in Cambridge and played it with representatives from various NATO countries. Mm -hmm. And we learned a great deal uh, and expanded our perspectives on the problem. Can you just briefly say what the core conclusion was of playing so, all these games, and then you, you synthesized and published a right. report on this. So we, we looked basically at the challenge presented by a short-warning Russian attack on NATO's most vulnerable member states, the Baltic Republics, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. And what we found was that given NATO's posture at the time we started the work, um, Russia could, in essence, uh, inflict a catastrophic conventional defeat on NATO in 36 to 60 hours, that they could basically overrun NATO's defenses, occupy the bulk of one, two, or all three Baltic states, and actually threaten the capitals in that time frame, uh, a surprisingly rapid uh, victory. Um, but we're ran, so we don't stop when we figure out what the problem is. We start trying to figure out what's the answer. Yeah. And so we did a second series of games that discovered that a surprisingly modest NATO force, one consisting of about seven brigades, 50,000 soldiers, broadly speaking, um, with three of those being heavy armored brigades, would be enough to prevent that rapid defeat and hold the line, we think, long enough for NATO to bring forward enough reinforcements to put in place a more 
solid defense. And by doing so, you take the prospect of a rapid victory of a fait off, exactly, off the table for the mm -hmm. Russians. And you present them instead with the, the prospect of a protracted war against an alliance that is far more capable than they are, far more powerful than they are, a war they know they can't win. And that makes sense. Did someone listen to this advice and take heed? Um, they did. In fact, um, since we've published this work and since we began briefing it throughout the U.S. government and throughout NATO, um, what we've seen is the, the United States has uh, undertaken a, um, a substantial enhancement of what's called the European Reassurance Initiative, ERI. That's included now what the, what the Army calls a heel-to-toe rotational presence mm -hmm. of an armored brigade in Europe. For the first time in, in five years, there are U.S. tanks in Europe, um, and they will remain there. A brigade will rotate in as a brigade rotates out. And NATO has, for the first time, forward deployed forces um, into the Baltic states. There are, is currently a uh, battle group, multinational battle group of NATO forces in each of the three Baltic states. Um, so we've seen um, both the United States and the Alliance take concrete steps based in part on the work that we did. I would have thought that this kind of work might be classified, might be secret. Uh, how do you determine what we do that is public and what we do that may be for other purposes? Well, of course, you know, Rand has uh, a commitment to publishing as much of its work as possible. That's, that's in our genes, really. Yep. Um, and so our default is to try to do as much as we can in, in, the, in the open domain. For the, for the Baltic work, we felt it was important to be able to publish and discuss our work openly because the conversations we wanted to influence had to occur there. We had to influence the debate within NATO. And mm -hmm. doing something that was classified within the U.S. system meant that it wasn't a conversation we could have in Brussels. It wasn't a conversation we could have in London. It wasn't a conversation we could have in Paris. And indeed, it would be a conversation that would be limited in terms of having it here in Washington. Yeah. So we thought it was very important that we, that we be able to do it um, in an unclassified realm. And we were able to do that, and our sponsors were cooperative um, in, in allowing us to do that. Now, we do do some games very highly classified on topics that are extremely sensitive where doing it in, in an unclassified realm would be, would be very problematic. But we do try to do as much as possible in the unclassified domain as we can. Dave, just step back and describe how does a game work? Is this a video game? Are people sitting around shooting lasers at each other? I mean, how does it work? So our games aren't quite that technologically uh, focused. Um, we use various kinds of games. Um, some of our listeners may recall, and as as um, as young people perhaps, playing um, the kinds of war games that were sold by companies like Avalon Hill or SPI back in the 70s and 80s, that had uh, fold-out maps with hex grids in printed on them, and moving cardboard markers around. Yeah. Um, we play games like that. Now, our, our rules are a lot more sophisticated and based on um, years and years of highly detailed uh, analysis, but the same principles apply. Let me ask a leading question. Who sure. came up with this idea of these hexagon-shaped game boards? Um, that was actually funny you should ask that question, <laughs> Jeff. 
Uh, that was actually a RAND innovation in the 1950s. Um, we, uh, uh, board games used to be played on square grids. Yeah. Um, and RAND came... You used to, meaning decades before, the, centuries, centuries the, before? Um, wargaming goes back, uh, it, modern wargaming goes back to sort of the early 19th century. The Prussian military sort of invented it mm-hmm. uh, in the early 19th century. And then throughout the, um, the, the, the interwar period in the early 20th century, it was done by all the major powers, including the United States. And it was typically done on, on a squares. And... and uh, Folks at RAND had the realization that a hex allowed more flexibility in movement. Hexes are, uh, of, of the polygons, they have the most sides of any regular polygon that can be packed coherently. Mm-hmm. So it allows, if you're moving pieces from one to another, it allows the most directions of movement. So I think what you're, what you're saying is that most of the games we do involve a board they involve a board with hexagonal shapes on them. They involve moving pieces around a board. Many do, but others involve um, a, a different different approaches. We have uh, other games that are map-based but don't use hexes. They use more network representation. So we have a game uh, that examines strategies for countering uh, the ISIS terror group mm-hmm. that instead of being about moving forces around on a hex grid is really about resources and uh, um, investments that uh, are about affecting a network. And so that's a map-based game, but it doesn't use a grid. And it's not really about the interaction of military forces as much as it's about how you maneuver different different types of resources around a region and across different sorts of groups. Why do these games work? It sounds like a, a a type of gaming was developed and has stood the test of time. What What is it about the process of playing one of these games that seems to pay off? Well, there are a couple of things. We, we know, first of all, that play is a very powerful uh, learning experience. Um, and we also know that, and, 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 and you know, we know this sort of colloquially, right? We We have that old saying about, if you give a man a fish, he eats for a day. If you teach him to fish, he eats for a lifetime, right? Experiential yeah. learning is very powerful. So I can stand up and give a terrific briefing on a topic. And, and Jeff, you know I'm a great briefer. Um, <laughs> or, that's, or, what, that's what you've told me, Dave. Yes, yes, you've heard it more than once. Um, or I can write a brilliant report on something. And I can tell you that something is true. But... When you learn it for yourself, when I put you in front of a map and I give you counters and I say, okay, here's the problem, find the solution, Mm. it's much more powerful for you to discover that solution for yourself because then I can follow up and say, well, Jeff, yeah, that's right. That is actually the solution. And here's all the data that support that. And here's the arguments that support that. And here's the evidence that supports that. And here's the implications that has for how our policy should evolve. Um, it's, it's a very, very powerful thing to learn as opposed to be taught. You know, one thing that you, you didn't mention just then, and I've participated in a couple of the games you've run, is emotion. I mean, the, the thing I find is that obviously the, the intellect gets stimulated, but the emotions get stimulated as well. well that's absolutely true. I mean, we, we've all had experiences playing games, whether it's children or playing games with our friends or with our kids or our grandkids, where somebody has at least had the inclination to kick the board over. Right. Right. Has that happened at a RAND game? 
I've had generals literally pin me up against a wall with their finger in my chest, um, yelling at me about about things that have happened. Um, I've never had anyone at a briefing get that worked up. I've never had anyone read one of my reports and call me on the phone and yell at me. But during the game. But during games, people do get, get that worked up. At the start of every game, we tell people, you know, this isn't about winning and losing, right? In the end, we're all on the same side. We're all trying to work this problem. We're all trying to find a solution to a challenge that we're all facing, right? So whether you're playing the good guys or the bad guys, we're all actually on the same side. And everyone nods their head. Yeah. And then as soon as you press the go button, it becomes about winning and losing. Because as soon as you put that competitive element in there, a lot of parts of your brain get turned on that don't get turned on when you're listening to a briefing or reading a report. And those are very important because those are the same parts of your brain that get, that get engaged in decision makers in a crisis or in a conflict. If you go back and look at the transcripts from the 1962 Cuban crisis, and you look at the types of questions and the types of observations that people were making, they were about, we have to look tough, we can't look like we're backing down. You know, they were, they were, they were these sorts of emotional um, uh, factors that get activated in a real-world situation that also get activated in a, in a game. I think, we, uh, I think we have a question. Uh, uh, Chris, if you'd like to be patched in. Good morning. I started at RAND in uh, wargaming and prepositioning forces, so I, I can relate, and then got my doctorate in gaming and went to many to the U.S., NATO, PACOM, AFRICOM, and so on. Besides prepositioning, which kudos to you guys, a major shortage always turns out to be the lack of integrated planning between U.S. military and civilian units or U.S. and allied military forces like local coast guards and such. Integrated planning for identifying points of contact, roles of mission, logistics support. There's no simple um, software to do that and update it for day-to-day. Would you consider, as a policy initiative, using RAND's constructive games to identify joint planning shortages and maybe possible solutions? We, we actually do games that are, are designed to explore those sorts of seams that you've, you've identified. And um, even the, the games that aren't deliberately designed to look at that often surface them. So, for example, when we've done our recent uh, spate of European security games, we did, uh, we did one at uh, United States European Command. And as we were playing the game, we had numerous conversations with people who said, you know, you're making this look as if it's all going to work really smoothly, but, you know, God help us if the Russians decide to start the war on the weekend when everyone's, when everyone's on leave, Right. Um, yep. Right. You're, you're making this look as if all these command and control linkages are going to work automatically, but in fact, for the following six reasons, they're going to be they're going to be challenging to, to 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 do. And so, even if you're not focusing the game on those questions, just playing the game and bringing the right people around the table surfaces those issues and gives you an opportunity to talk about them and talk about ways of ameliorating them. But we can also do games that are focused on that. So I'm, I'm not going to talk about the details too much, but right now we are, in fact, in the process of, of designing and running a game that is ex- explicitly looking at questions of multilateral command and control 
uh, within NATO with the idea of being able to craft uh, a construct for it that NATO can sort of use as a starting point for refining, revising, and improving their existing processes? So that's a great question. And, and yes, the answer is yes, we do try to, to use our games to, to, to work those sorts of issues. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for your call. Thanks, Christopher. While we're waiting for others to join in, uh, I have a question about uh, what your your favorite game might be, and I and I think we we can't count uh, the Baltics. I mean that was okay. a great one, but what other than that, what would be favorite in the in in terms of either enjoyed it or it somehow led to something terrific? Well, I've had a lot of great gaming experiences at Rand. I've been doing this for a very long time, and I've had a chance to work with some some just terrific terrific people. Um, but a recent experience really sticks in my mind because to me it indicates just how powerful games can be. Um, I was asked by, by Susan Marquis, the dean of the Party Rand Graduate School and our vice president for innovation, to uh, do a game with the Board of Governors for the Party Rand School. Um, but the constraint I was given was that I was only going to have half an hour. I was going to have half an hour to teach them the game and play the game versus normally well we our games at minimum are half a day mm -hmm. and more typically are, are a day two days three days some of our mm. games last a week right so this was incredibly challenging yeah. um you know i think that if you think about it you know teaching someone to play Candyland and then playing it in half an hour is is kind of a tough road to hoe and now i'm being asked to to come up with a game that will sort of have a policy spin to it, um, teach it, play it, half an hour. Um, but we decided that that wasn't hard enough. We decided that we didn't want to have to worry about coming up with, you know, a bunch of materials and, and, and sort of custom building a game. So we thought, well, can we do this with like a deck of cards, a deck of regular playing cards, right? Um, and so I, I put my head together with some of my, some of my really talented colleagues who are way better at this than I am truth be told, and uh, working from a basic game concept that uh, uh, Brian Jackson and Dave Frelinger, two, two, two of my really smart uh, friends, had, we came up with a game that basically tried to replicate um, some core aspects of the international system, and particularly sort of great power competition, right? Mm -hmm. Russia, the United States, China, um, and would teach lessons about things like deterrence, and crisis management and the dynamics of escalation among great powers within that system. With a deck of cards. With two decks of cards. Two one, decks of cards. One, one red back deck of cards and one blue back deck of cards. And so we had two decks of cards and a, a rule book that was the front and back of one sheet of paper in very large type because I'm getting old and my eyes are bad. <laughs> and so I went into the Board of Governors meeting and the, a lot of the folks there were skeptical. They were sort of like, oh, yeah, this is one of those wacky things that Susan likes to ask us to do. And these and, would be fairly senior, oh, yeah. these are these policymakers. Are, I mean, right. And some of these folks are members of the RAND Board of Trustees yep. who are sort of double-hatted on the PRGS board. These are, these are folks who have real lives, real careers, real experience. And they were like, yeah, we're a little uncertain about this. And then I stand up and show them two decks of playing cards and explain this, and they're even less certain than they were when we started. But then we start playing the game. And um, most of them blew up the world a couple times. Um, but by the time Susan called time and said, look, we got to get back to business, 
Um, the, re the universal reaction around the room was sort of like when you ask your teenage son to put away the video game and take out the trash. It was, Mom, come on, can't we have 10 more minutes? Um, did they get it? They did. They, they, they totally got it. They got the extra time. No, they didn't get the extra time, okay. but, they, but they got the message. Right. They, got, they, they walked away going, oh, this is really, yeah, I see how this works. I see how these dynamics play out. You know, we blew up the world the first time because we didn't understand this. So the second time we tried doing it differently and we didn't blow up the world. That's really pretty cool. And so I walked away going, you know, this was the simplest game we could come up with, with the simplest tools we could come up with. Yep. And yet we were able to convey really important meaningful messages and it left me wondering with all the other things Rand does are there opportunities we have to use these kinds of simple mechanics simple methods simple tools to both uh, educate and illuminate um, so that was a really powerful experience for me and one that I'm really grateful for to, to Susan for giving us the opportunity to, to have you made some allusions to using gaming for healthcare. I think that uh, many of us may normally think of defense, military affairs when we think of, of gaming. Tell us more about that. Are there new things to tackle uh, antimicrobial resistance, for example? I think I've heard you, you mention. Well, we've used gaming to look at a lot of issues outside the national security realm over the years. Mm. Um, for example, in the 1990s, we did a series of games looking at um, how to combat drug abuse in American urban areas. Mm. And so uh, we did a series of games in D.C., in Miami, um, that helped practitioners um, in those communities come up with innovative new approaches to, to dealing with how to better balance, uh, for example, law enforcement and punitive strategies versus uh, using treatment. Um, very innovative games and uh, very productive games. We have uh, games that look at how to think about the uncertainties inherent in dealing with climate change. That we've, that we've played with a wide variety of audiences. Uh, you mentioned AMR, antimicrobial resistance. This is a huge emerging problem in the healthcare community because of the overuse of antibiotics, um, both in the human population but also in the food chain. Right. Uh, we're seeing strains of bacteria emerging that have uh, resistance to most, if not all, of the commonly used antibiotics. Um, and so uh, the Center for Gaming, which is one of the method centers here at RAND, gave out a seed grant, a very small amount of money, to a, a team that was uh, actually transatlantic team. It paired researchers in RAND Europe, in Cambridge, with some gaming experts here in RAND US to design a game to look at strategies for dealing with antimicrobial resistant bacteria. How do you, as a public health community, respond to an outbreak of one of these pathogens? And um, this game was actually played in London about a month ago. And among the attendees, among the participants of the game, was the UK Minister of Health. And when the game was over, her reaction was, we need to do more of this. We need to not just be thinking more about this problem, but we need to use games like this more, both to learn more about the problem and to sensitize our practitioners to the, the challenges of dealing with it. So that was a very small amount of money. We're talking single-digit thousands of dollars, mm -hmm. a small amount of money that has had a significant impact um, in the U.K. and how they're going to think about this, this, this problem. 
so I think it's a it's a it's a it's a big win for our uh, our method centers, which are uh, uh, an, an innovation here at here at RAM that that we've been pursuing over the last couple of years. Has this particular method center existed for some time? So the the center for gaming is about three and a half years old now. The mm. the method center initiative as a whole is about four and a half years old. Uh, it originally started in our in our global research talent uh, department, but it recently was rehoused within the Party Rand School as part of our uh, effort to to sort of centralize our efforts to um, to innovate within within Rand. There are there are six of these centers, um, gaming being being one of them. Um, Stacy Pettyjohn, one of our senior political scientists, and I co-lead co the, the Center for Gaming. And uh, we work very hard both to serve our community of practitioners within RAND to provide sort of a nexus for their, um, for their work, um, but also to provide opportunities for things like this AMR game, to, uh -huh. to provide you know, sort of small amounts of money that um, can catalyze new approaches to gaming or new uses for existing methods. And we also support our business units in their in their work as well, so that they can better support their client base in in using gaming. I see that uh, Christopher has another question. Okay, uh, we want to patch him back in. Welcome back. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, sorry for uh, doing two. Since you mentioned uh, health crises, there is a. Um, uh, the, uh, one of the problems with health crises, say with addicts or mental health problems, is that the only response right now is calling 911, and people tie up the emergency rooms and don't have anyone there that can really uh, deal with it. There is a new initiative in the U.S. to form crisis intervention teams, uh, mixed teams of therapists and uh, police officers who are wearing uniforms to respond to those kinds of crises. Los Angeles has the biggest one called the System-Wide Mental Assistant uh, Response Team, or SMART. Uh, you, this involves both your prepositioning uh, and uh, uh, being able to respond to crises. Would you consider gaming to deal with that kind of strategy? Yeah, we've actually used gaming in the past. That's a great question. We've used gaming in the past as a way of of training uh, first responders. You know, you don't want to have necessarily have to have, say, um, an outbreak of some epidemic disease in order to figure out how to respond, right? Um, what you want to do is test your procedures, test your processes, train your people beforehand. And so games give you an opportunity to sort of simulate that. They give you an opportunity to test drive your, uh, your uh, responses. And so we've used games in the past to train first responders. How do you react when the following situation arises? Whether it's um, EMTs, whether it's emergency room staff, or you could imagine using it for these, uh, these intervention teams. You could run them through different sorts of scenarios. Um, whether it's a, uh, a situation where it's a particular type of, of complex crisis or whether it's a situation where because of some event that occurs, um, there's sort of a mass trauma 
that they have to respond to that's sort of stressing their capacity to respond. Um, there's a lot of different ways I can think of that you could use gaming to help prepare those folks for their uh, for their job, and particularly for, if you will, the edge cases of their job, the the, the more extreme, more more difficult parts of their uh, uh, of their responsibilities. One example, for instance, of that was when uh, they did a, a disease simulation and found that people who thought they had the disease, speaking of mass trauma, would uh, go to the the uh, centers with the with the medicine that to counter it, and the ones that thought only thought they had it actually used up all the resources and there was no way at those centers to triage the real from the uh, uh, from the imagined yeah the, the so-called worried well are uh, are a huge problem in those sorts of scenarios and when we when we play games um, that's that's usually a factor that we throw in there to to confuse the situation and to sort of condition the players to respond and to, and to give them awareness of that and help them learn techniques for, uh, for, for, for effectively managing it. Uh, I have one or two more questions myself uh, for Dave. Namely, uh, what, what are you up to lately? Well, a lot of the work that I'm doing um, these days focuses on two primary questions. Um, Korea, obviously, is one that's very much on people's minds. It's one that we've been looking at for several years, um, doing different sorts of games, uh, tackling it from different angles. Um, and that work is ongoing as we try to think through what are strategies for simultaneously advancing towards the, the um, objectives that we have on the Korean Peninsula, um, while at the same time avoiding conflict, um, which is a delicate balance to, to try to manage. Um, so that's, that's uh, mm -hmm. one side. And then on, sort of on the other side of the Eurasian landmass, we're looking a lot at Russia and the, the challenges that have developed there, particularly since the 2013-2014 crises in Crimea and Ukraine, the ongoing crisis in Ukraine, um, looking at the, the, both the more conventional military dimension to that, but also the unconventional dimension, um, the so-called gray zone um, tactics that they use um, that range from the, the, the fake news and propaganda, the destabilization, political and economic destabilization tactics they've employed against some of their neighbors, um, you know, the alleged um, intervention in elections and so forth. We're using uh, games to look at all those sorts of problems. Let me ask, in both of these cases, there is a an adversary, or, or I suppose in the case of Korea, a potential collaborator in China. Uh, have, have you engaged those other sides, Russians or Chinese uh, officials or, or otherwise, in, in gaming in those two spheres? We actually have a standing offer to the Russians to come and game with us. Yep. Um, we, would, we would like that very much. There'd be some legal hurdles we would have to sort of work our way through uh, to make that happen, but we would do that if they were if they were interested, because we think that there there's a lot to be gained for both sides, um, in terms of mutual understanding and in terms of working through um, the potential for for misunderstanding that could lead to tensions and and potentially to crisis. 
Um, on the uh, on the other side, we have um, we have a number of initiatives that uh, are allowing us to conduct different kinds of games with the with the South Koreans, looking at the Korean Peninsula, and we are seeking to engage the the, the Chinese as well. I mean, on that front, I've heard Bruce Bennett speak often of if there were to be a collapse in North Korea that there might then be a mad rush of sorts by Americans and South Koreans heading north and Chinese heading south and uh, potential problems arising when they when they meet up. Right. I think that there's, there's a broad consensus among experts that um, any sort of significant instability in North Korea would not be something that the Chinese would, would be comfortable just sort of standing aside and watching. Um, the the debate is about what form the intervention would take, um, the the scale and scope of it, um, and certainly the same would be true for the South Koreans. It would be very hard for them to stand aside and watch uh, the trauma simply unfold in North Korea, in part because of the spillover potential into the into the South. And any time you have an uncoordinated uh, actions by the Chinese on one end of what is ultimately a fairly small country and the United States and South Korea on the other end, there's the potential for um, inadvertent uh, conflict. And so it would be enormously beneficial to all sides to, in advance, have at least conversations that uh, provided some mutual understanding about, well, if this happens, here's the sort of thing that we're probably likely to do um, just so that it won't be a complete surprise to the other side um, should that, uh, that scenario start to unfold. And those are the sorts of games we would, we would like to be able to, uh, to, to undertake and that we're, that we're actually actively working to, uh, to do. Excellent. Look forward to hearing more about that. Uh, it is uh, the end of our time, 1243 here in Washington. Uh, Dave, thanks so much for your time and insights. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, thanks to our Policy Circle and RAND Next members and friends for joining us on this call. If you'd like more information on upcoming Policy Circle events or to listen to a podcast, please visit RAND.org or contact us directly at policy underscore circle at RAND.org. This concludes our call. Thanks, and have a great day. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.